So we have been, uh, we started a little series on Ecclesiastes, a brief series. We're going to go to Colossians uh, when we get to February. Um, there's going to be a guest preacher next week, and then I'll pick up uh, one last message on Ecclesiastes the week after that. Um, that third message on Ecclesiastes will cover a key theme of the book on enjoying God's good gifts, even in the midst of the frustration. You know, I think we probably have all picked up on this uh, at some point, um, that if you want to get the point of a book, um, there's a pretty simple strategy. Um, kids, if you haven't learned this yet, you know, I don't know if I should tell you this, but you know, maybe you'll be assigned a book for school, maybe in college, and you don't have time to read the whole thing. At least read the beginning read the conclusion, and then go through, scan it, and try to pick up any big important themes. And in our study of Ecclesiastes, that's basically what we're doing. Last week we did the introduction to the book. This week we're going to do the conclusion to the book, and then uh, in two weeks I'm going to pick up this recurring theme that goes through the book. And that gives you kind of the overall picture, and then you can read it yourself and see how that kind of works its way out uh, in the Christian life. It is one of the books in the Bible that the Jews and the Christians regard as a wisdom book. And boy, do we need wisdom. Um, as a matter of fact, what we're going to be talking about today, about fearing God, um, I hope that we remember that the Proverbs begins by saying, what? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, as we come to the conclusion, we are going to hear... Once again, uh, this message that comes all through the Bible about fearing God and keeping his commandments. Okay, so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm going to pick up at verse 9. Besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray briefly. Lord, we do thank you that you don't leave us wondering what our purpose is. And Lord, while we may chafe against that, I pray that today, Lord, that you would soften our hearts that we would be truly grateful that you have given us true and upright words. But even as this passage mentions, they're words that function like goads, like things that prick us, sometimes uncomfortable, but always good and always true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here we come to the conclusion of the book. Um, the NIV translation says, um, puts it this way, you know, what, what is, everything's been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. What is the purpose of man? 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. So there it is, laid out. Um, I hope you notice, right, that these are true words. They're well thought out. Verse 10 says that. Look, the preacher taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So these are not just, you know, him venting. This is one of the reasons why when we look at this book, we can't regard this book as the words of a skeptic or somebody who's lost their faith. These are words that have been carefully chosen by one who has great wisdom. They're well thought out, trustworthy words. And this passage, like I say, is what, one of the things that prevents us from treating the book of Ecclesiastes as a book of despair or the book written by somebody who's lost their faith. It's not a book about that at all. It's a book about wisdom in the midst of a frustrating world that's been broken by sin. We talked about that last week. So if you missed that first message, you might go back and, and you can see that on the City Church website. You can get to that. Um, but he also says here in verse 11 that the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Now, that's a really interesting passage. One of the things you know that the wisdom literature often does is it makes you kind of stop and savor what's been said to try to kind of get the get a sense of what's going on here. It's kind of like good poetry. Sometimes you don't get what's being said at first. You got to just kind of sit in the imagery for a little bit. Uh, it might help to know what is a goad. What is a goad? It's not a word we use much anymore, but a goad is actually a spur um, kind of like a spur for, you know, if you're riding a horse. Um, but it, a goad is actually even more, in, a little more intense than that because a goad is a spike that would be attached to the end of a pole and you would use it to jab your oxen in the butt to keep them moving. Now that's a fascinating image to use when talking about the words of the wise, thinking about the Bible, thinking particularly about the book of Ecclesiastes, how is it like a little jab in the butt to get us moving? Well, I think one of the ways is, um, while naming the frustration, it doesn't want us to just sit in the frustration without moving forward. Um, that sometimes, you know, questions that emerge from frustration, from the brokenness, from suffering in the world, um, even when they're designed, and I believe they're always designed, um, to drive us deeper into understanding who is God? Who is a God like this that would love us even through pain? As um, C.S. Lewis used to say, um, pain is like God's megaphone. But I think sometimes even these things that should be leading us downstream or even against the stream maybe is a better image to deeper into the heart of God, sometimes we can get caught in these little eddy currents and just kind of like, swirl around there, um, and, and the, the words of the wise are like goads. They kind of prick us and say, no, no, keep moving. Keep going deeper into the heart of God. Pursue him with your questions. Bring them before him. Don't just kind of sit over here and say, well, I'm really mad about this, and, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to sit here and kind of swirl around these questions. Um, th that's what I think is, is the thing we need to take away away from this. The point is these words are to spur us to think and to ponder and to learn. Ecclesiastes, like all good art, is disturbing, it's challenging, maybe even a little annoying at times. 
Don't you think constantly being pricked by a goad would get a little annoying? I think it would. Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote a, a, a nice little commentary on Ecclesiastes, said this, Does it irritate you or even anger you to be told that unless you fear God, you've missed the meaning of life? Yeah, go, go say that in your school. Go say that in your place of work. Go stand out at five points and proclaim that. <laughs> that unless you fear God, you've missed the point of life. That's a strong thing. That's an annoying thing for some of us. See, the teacher isn't just entering into a journey to find the meaning of life for himself. He's seeking to impart wisdom to us. He's, he's carefully crafted this book to help us to understand, and the words are to be like goads. But here's a question we all have to wrestle with, I think. Do we really want to know the purpose of life? Do we really want to find the answers? You might think, well, that's kind of a silly question. Who wouldn't want to know the meaning of life? I think, really, there are a lot of us who enjoy the search, but really don't want to settle on the answers. Maybe we're convinced there are no answers. Maybe we think the purpose of life is just to struggle, just to stay in that little eddy current and kind of swirl around, right? I think a lot of people in our day, and you can understand when there's so many competing ideas, it's hard to know what's true. Maybe consciously or unconsciously, we've adopted this attitude, stay safe by staying free. In other words, you can't really be wrong if you never commit to anything as being the quote-unquote answer. Derek Kidner, wonderful Old Testament scholar, who also has written a book about Ecclesiastes, real helpful, says that we can grow addicted to research itself, in love with our hard questions. An answer would spoil everything. An answer, you see, would make us responsible to live according to the truth that we've come to believe. Um, as my friend, Aaron's friend, Steve Garber, is always asking, always asking, particularly college students, what will you do with what you know? Jesus asked that question, what will you do with what you know? And when Steve talks to college students, he says this, but I'll, I'll direct it to all of us here. Is your education merely a passport to a life of wealth and privilege? Or does it implicate you in the problems that you see? Are we responsible for what we know? If you've read this with us today, you're responsible for what you now know. That the whole duty of mankind is to fear God and keep his commandments. And while you may feel like there's a, a certain righteousness to kind of say, well, can we really be sure? Listen, I don't want to minimize legitimate struggle, but there also can be a time when we're sort of taking refuge in the struggle rather than embracing and submitting to what God has so clearly said. Attitude, I think, is expressed so well by C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've ever read his book, The Great Divorce, um, but there's a a scene there. It, it, now, the great divorce, just let me set it up if you've never read it, is there these spirits, and this is not a literal understanding of heaven and hell and how you get from one to the other, but the, 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 the picture in this book it's a, it's a, is a, the spirits that are basically having the opportunity to go from sort of this place of kind of resting, waiting, so to speak. There's a bus that comes every day, and they can get on the bus and go to heaven. 
but they they're all resisting and they've all got different excuses and um there's there's one lifelong searcher who's invited by the white spirit to get on the bus and here's what the white spirit tells this lifelong searcher i can promise you if you get on this bus and go to heaven i can promise you no scope for your talents only forgiveness for having perverted them no atmosphere of inquiry for I will bring you to the land, not of questions, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. And the searcher replies, Ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. There's no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Listen, said the white spirit. Once you were a child... Once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. Ah, said the searcher, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And Lewis says, no argument, no appeal will avail against this infinite elasticity. The encounter, already fruitless, ends with the gentle sophist remembering an appointment, making his apologies, and hurrying off to his discussion group in hell. It's a sobering picture, and one that I think we need to take to heart. Do you ask questions to find answers or to avoid responsibility? Do you want to know the purpose of life, or are your questions a way of trying to keep God at a distance? Because here's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes here. The book of Ecclesiastes opposes the endless search. As C.S. Lewis said one time, the point of an open mind is so that when truth gets into it, you can close it. <laughs> Doesn't mean that you quit listening. But it does mean that you've come to understand there is truth. This book opposes relativism because these books are true. The teacher tells us the meaning of life. The search is over. It's time to live in line with the truth. And so what is that truth that we're to live in line with? Well, he says it. Fear God and keep his commandments. So let's get into that. What does it mean to fear God? You know, we probably all know the, the, the story from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Um, when the children find out that Aslan is a lion, they're a little freaked out, right? He's a lion. Is he safe? And they get the response, is he safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think for so many, that's a picture that really helps us understand what does it mean to fear God. It's not being afraid of God, though I will say, if you're living unreconciled to God by Christ, you do have reason to be afraid. That last verse, God will bring every deed into judgment, is not just a throwaway. It's part of the truth. It's part of the truth. But Psalm 130, verse 4, what we used as our assurance of pardon, I love the way it says, because there is forgiveness of sins with you, Lord, we will fear you. That means that the Christian understanding of fearing God is not being afraid of God, but it's also not trivializing God, right? The fear of God is not a, a slavish fear, always 
wondering whether he's going to hit us. Maybe, you know, some of you maybe have uh, adopted a rescue pet, you know, maybe one that's been, you know, beaten or mistreated. And it's so heartbreaking to see, to even raise your voice the way that pet cowers. That's not the way the children of God should be before their Heavenly Father. But we also take seriously the weightiness of who God is, right? Uh, the fear of God is a constant desire to have God before us, to live what we call quorum Deo, before the face of God, to seek to please him in all we do because that's our true joy. This is what Jesus models for us as the way to be truly authentically human. Jesus says, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. The Bible says you'll never rightly fear God until you see your sin and the fact that you're a forgiven child. I love what Eric said at the beginning. It's not just seeing the power of God. It's the power of God and the mercy of God that melts us. He already quoted this quote by John Calvin. I've got a couple others that have helped me trying to understand the nuances of this idea of the fear of God. Charles Bridges, a 19th century Anglican, put it this way. The fear of God is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament scholar I mentioned previously, I love this one. He says, fear God is a call that puts us in our place and puts all other fears, hopes, and aspirations in their place. Think about that. The fear of God puts all other fears in their place. And then maybe this hymn will help. Sometimes some of these things, the theologians are good, but the poets maybe say it even better. This from a hymn by a man named Frederick Faber, F-A-B-E-R. The hymn is called, My God, How Wonderful Thou Art. And this verse I, I love so much. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. You see what he's saying? Love, the love of God, seeing the love of God draws you to him. But the fear of God is the mark of someone who's actually been touched by God. Somebody who's actually interacted with God, has a relationship with God, not just kind of a, oh yeah, I like God. He's pretty cool. Love is thine attraction. Fear is thy very touch. Fearing God means living all of life in line with all that he's revealed in our attitudes and our actions. It's a, live, it's a life lived consistent with the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. Actually, the gospel should take us deeper into the fear of God, should take us deeper into who is a God like you that forgives sins, that would send your own son to live and die in the place of people who spit at you. It's a way better paradigm, you know, when thinking about holiness, to think about fearing God rather than just simply obeying the rules. You know, too many people think of Christianity as just being about obeying the rules. 
And it's not hard to understand why or where they've gotten this distorted idea. That kind of moralistic teaching abounds in Bible-believing churches, especially here in the South. But there's no fear of God, no reverence. Think about some of the songs that we sing. Think about the way we live. I remember in college, um, stumbling upon a book by a guy named Robert Murray McShane. And I, I was really, you know, a pretty young Christian, but I remember getting this book and beginning to read it. It's mostly his journal. He died when he was 30. And his friend, Andrew Bonarp, basically edited his journal and published it. And I remember I just had never experienced somebody that had such a longing for holiness and a longing for the love of God. It really drew me into wanting to know what was the theology, what was the, the understanding of the Bible and of God that, that drew out this kind of response, because that's what I wanted. I remember this quote in particular, I've always, always resonated with this. Few tremble at the word of God. Few in reading it hear the voice of Jehovah, which is full of majesty. That's what it means to fear God. This is a little older reference, but uh, Steve Taylor, uh, brilliant artist, singer, songwriter, now college professor who lives here in Nashville, perhaps some of you know him, uh, had a record years ago um, called Squint and has this song on there. I encourage you to go check it out. I'm sure it's on Spotify called Smug, S-M-U-G. And he, and he talks about this attitude of smugness that marks so many of our churches, rather than the attitude of reverent fear. He says, welcome to our church. We can help you evolve from merely self-righteous to perfectly smug. Oh, woe is us if that's what church is about. We've often said at City Church, we don't wanna just play church. I remember um, Rod Cruz used to say that all the time. You know, we're going to, if you've been around City Church for a long time, he was one of the founding elders of City Church. Um, now part of it, he went to be part of another church plant down in Nolensville. But he used to say, look, we're going to read this confession of sin and let you ponder it because we don't want to play church. We don't want to play church, right? This smug is what happens when we play church and there's no fear of God. I know, um, you know, a few years ago, our RUF group, I work with RUF at Belmont, we didn't have a place to meet. And um, I reached out to uh, one of the, the, the vice president at, at Belmont. He said, well, you should call Jerry Maynard. Um, Jerry Maynard is an African-American pastor in a Church of God in Christ, Cogent Church on 12th Avenue South, and see if maybe he'll let you meet over there. So I didn't know him. I called him up and he said, sure. You know, just come on over and I'll give you the keys. <laughs> That's remarkable. Just gave me the keys, right? And I had the opportunity as that relationship developed, we met there for several years, um, to attend that church sometimes. Let me tell you, those folks weren't playing church. Maybe you've had the opportunity to, to experience life in a black church. Um, I'm not saying this is true of all black churches. It's not true of all white churches. But that church, I always felt like these people are not playing church. These are homeless people. These are drug addicts. These are people, I always thought like my white privileged Belmont students who grew up in these big mega churches and are really wondering if this stuff is all true. Where would I send them to try to help them understand that there really is truth to Christianity? I'd probably send them there because those people weren't getting anything out 
of being Christians, really, as far as worldly success or opportunities. That's the way it was in the early church. You know, there's a guy, Larry Hurtado, wrote a fascinating book, which I, I encourage all you to read. It's got a very long title, Why Would Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? <laughs> it's not really very, very uh, pithy title, but he basically says, look, there was no social advantage. Being a Christian in the first three centuries only brought the end of your career, <laughs> right? Maybe the breakup of your family. It, it made it, you know, there was no social advantage to becoming a Christian in the first three centuries, and yet people converted by scores. Why? Those early Christians weren't playing church. It wasn't a means to an end to become popular or influential. It actually was just the opposite. And maybe we need some more of that. But he also goes on, says it's not just fearing God, it's keeping his commandments. See, we're not called to merely a nebulous, reverential attitude. We're actually called to obey commandments. When students ask me sometimes about knowing God's will for their life, that's the obsession of modern people, and especially perfectionistic people. Uh, sometimes I said, I, I like to ask if I'm in a snarky mood, you really want to know the will of God? Let's start with this, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Try this one on. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And that's one of those kind of things you're like, oh, uh, maybe I want to find a different will of God. You know, I was like, when you get that one down, come back and I'll give you some more. God doesn't leave us just kind of wondering, what's his will for my life? There are very specific things the Bible says. Here, Ecclesiastes says, it's the whole duty of man. That means all mankind. Obeying God's commands is the focal point of fearing God. Think about this. It, it applies to all mankind because remember, Ecclesiastes is based on Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Fearing God and keep his keeping his commandments was actually mankind's call in the garden. You might wonder, why did God put that tree there of the knowledge of good and evil and tell Adam and Eve not to eat of it? It wasn't because God was afraid or insecure. I know a lot of people read it that way. No, that tree was the focal point of obedience. It was the test. Will you fear God and obey his commandments rather than what seems pleasing to you? It's where the rubber meets the road. It's the focal point of obedience. Even though this thing looks pleasing to the eye and good for food, God says no. And if God says no, will you submit to that? Because fearing God and keeping his commandments has always been the purpose of mankind. It was the purpose before the fall, and it remains our purpose today. It's what we were made for. That's why James calls the law of God the law of perfect freedom. It's a fascinating image, an image that probably leaves a lot of us scratching our head. But think of it this way. It'd be like if you were you know, out on the harp of fishing, there on the bank, you know, if you were lucky enough to, to have a, a spot to where you could fly fish from the bank, um, and, and all of a sudden this, this trout jumps out of the water and starts shouting, yay, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free of the constraints of this stream, I can sort of go anywhere I want. Now, you'd be like, uh, well, first of all, it's a, it's a talking fish, that would be a bit of a, of, of a, a thing, but you realize, like fish, you're kind of stupid. 
You were made to live in the water. And, and, and jumping out of that, rebelling against that, is not freedom. It's death. Freedom is living for what you were made for. And that's what the commandments of God are about. And it's serious business. Because as this last verse says, everything will be brought into judgment one day. There is a plan and a purpose for everything. And God will judge all things. That's true. It's upright and true, this book says. Okay, great then. What about those of us who've not done what we ought to have done? Right? I mean, we confess that very thing in our confession of sin. So tell me something that's helpful. Fear God, keep his commandments. Okay, well, I screwed that up. I haven't done that. What does Ecclesiastes have to say about that? It does say something about that. We need to look to our great shepherd and how he cares for us. I know life is frustrating. I know that we fail to fear God and keep his commands. I know that we've all failed to live that purpose for which we were made. But look at verse 11. It says that our shepherd is the one who has given us these words of wisdom. Listen, one of the ways you see grace in the Bible is the fact that the story continued after Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve sin against God, and he announces the curse that now everything will be frustrating. Ecclesiastes is basically fleshing out the way that frustration works itself out in all areas of life. But here's the thing. The fact that Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 and 6 and 7 and on and on and on is in the Bible means that our God is patient and merciful. Don't make light of that. Sometimes it's hard to see where the grace of God is. But listen, the fact that he still speaks truth to people who've turned away from what he said that he's given these words as a good shepherd, words that might prick us and provoke us so that we're not stuck in our little eddy currents, so that we're not just calm and confident in our rebellion, even living against what he says we're made for. He doesn't leave us there. But he doesn't just give us these good words. Don't make light of this. He's a God who's given wisdom to those who deserve death. That's no little thing. He's a God who's given wisdom, true words, to those who deserve death. But of course he's given us so much more than that. He doesn't just give advice. He gives us his son. The covenant of creation there in Genesis has never been rescinded. Our purpose in life has been and still is to fear God and keep his commandments. And if we fail to fulfill that purpose, we will die. But the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus keeps the covenant for us. Fear God and keep his commandments. Jesus said, that's what I live for. It's my meat and drink. But then he suffers the curse of the covenant for those who haven't lived for that. When we put our trust in Jesus, we get credit in union with him. We keep the covenant. We fulfill our purpose. It sets us free from trying to be our own savior. 
And it sets us free to actually see the law as this gracious revelation of what we were made for. We're no longer going to be driven by this need to be our own savior, either by keeping the rules, that's legalism, or by making up our own rules. Both of those are exhausting. But God says, I'll live and die in your place. And then if you love me, here's how you are to love me. Keep my commands. Jesus said it. William Cooper, the great hymn writer and poet, put it this way in his hymn, Love Constraining to Obedience. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. The Good Shepherd. Jesus takes that image to himself, doesn't he? In John chapter 10, he says, I'm the good shepherd who not only calls to my sheep, gives us the counsel we need, but I'm the one who lays down my life for my sheep. Listen to these words, John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired man and cares nothing for the sheep. I, Jesus says, am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Oh, the motivation when you see this. What should our response be to our great shepherd who doesn't just give us wisdom, but has laid down his life for us? Well, you know the answer. To fear God and keep his commandments. But now with an entirely new motivation. And the spirit is given to us to remind us over and over again of who Jesus is and what he's done. And to lead us into obeying and fearing God. Oh, that the world would see this when they see his church. This is true piety. Not what we saw displayed at our nation's capital this week. Signs saying Jesus saves in the hands of those looking to politicians for hope in life are a blasphemy. And we need to not be afraid to say that. You know, a mob tried to make Jesus king by force once. You remember how he responded? He slipped away. Because his kingdom comes through his death. And that's our hope. That's our hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you don't just give us true words. Oh, but Lord, help us to not take that for granted or make light of that. But Lord, thank you that you've done more than that because we need more than that. We need more than just advice. Even true, good, delightful advice. We needed death. And you took that death. You gave us your spirit. And you say that in the new covenant, you have written your law on our hearts and will move us to obey. Oh, Lord, please do that. Please do that. And lead us to repentance where we fail to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>